Welcome to the newest episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. This episode is another episode in our Emerging Scholar series and features a discussion with Dr. Amanda Sladek. Today is October 26th, 2020. Happy birthday, Dad. On November 30th, a coalition of black scholars in technical and professional communication offer their perspectives on defining black technical and professional communication, advocating for the inclusion of black perspectives in the body of mainstream disciplinary scholarship and pedagogical practice, and carving out the methodological, theoretical, and practical space that will enable other black scholars, teachers, and practitioners in the field to see and do such work. Like I mentioned, this event will take place on November 30th from 1.30 to 3 p.m. Eastern via Zoom and feature members of the Conference on College Composition and Communication, Black Technical and Professional Communication Task Force, Kimberly Harper, Constance Haywood, Natasha Jones, Temptatious McCoy, Donnie Jackson Sakay, Cecilia Shelton, and Jayla Warman. You can check out their Four C's Black Technical and Professional Communication Position Statement with Resource Guide before the event or anytime. Registration is required for the event. I'll shoot out a link via Twitter. The Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Series features the work of graduate students and less seasoned scholars in rhetoric, composition, and technical communication, discussing their life and their work. This unique series of episodes extends conversations within these areas to offer a glimpse of the future of the discipline. If you'd like to be featured on the Emerging Scholar series, visit our website, www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com, and fill out a form. Dr. Amanda Slotik is an assistant professor of English and Composition Coordinator, that's her term, her university's term for WPA at the University of Nebraska Kearney. Her research focuses on language diversity and multiliteracies in introductory composition and basic writing. She teaches basic writing, first-year writing, and graduate and undergraduate courses in world Englishes, literacy studies, and composition pedagogy. Um, but it really was the right choice for me because I knew I wanted the PhD and I wanted to continue working with the faculty that I'd been working with. And I've always been pretty motivated, which is a kind way to say workaholic, you know, workaholic with anxiety. So so it was a good choice for me. She is chair of the Four C's Untenured and Alternative Academic WPA Standing Group, which advocates for the needs of WPAs who operate without the protection of tenure, including pre-tenure faculty, academic support staff, and graduate students. When not teaching, writing, or administrating, she enjoys yoga, online advice columns, and watching Netflix with her 10-year-old Cocker Spaniel Scout. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Amanda Slide. Let's start off with who are you? What's your name? What's your title and your role there and your institutional affiliation? Sure. Uh, my name is Amanda Slotik, and I am an assistant professor of English and the composition coordinator, which is our term for WPA, at the University of Nebraska at Kearney. 
Are you from Kearney? I'm not from Kearney. I'm from um, a small town in Nebraska called Valley, okay. which is in um, eastern Nebraska, about 20 miles west of Omaha. Uh, for those of listeners who are familiar with Nebraska geography, so it's about three hours away from Kearney. But my sister um, is actually a UNK, a Kearney alum. And she uh, lives in Kearney and teaches at the high school. So, and she was teaching at the high school when I applied for and accepted the job. So that was one of the draws was being closer to family. And literally my sister at the time was living in an apartment that I could see from my office window, which was kind of neat. Absolutely. So you mentioned, that, and that, that's excellent. Um, and it must be nice to have your sister close. We'll get into more of that. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned the name of your hometown is Valley? Mm-hmm. So what was it like growing up in Valley? What are the things that Amanda was doing in Valley as a teen and a child? Um, It was, it's, you know, the typical small town uh, experience. It's about 2,000 people, or it was uh, when I lived there. Um, The kind of town where um, I accidentally, one time when I was driving home, put my, I stopped for gas and I put my credit card in the receipt slot and it got stuck. And I had to ask somebody for help. And my mom knew about it before I saw her next because word travels that fast. Within 20 minutes, my mom knew that I'd done this dumb thing. <laughs> um, so it was it was good. It was a small graduating class. So you sort of knew everybody. Um, I did a lot of, you know, the typical, you could be involved in a lot of activities. So I did a lot of theater and uh, extracurricular stuff at school. Um farming communities around Valley, but it was close enough to Omaha that it wasn't uh, completely rural. So I guess this is kind of where your love for English started. Yeah, I would say so. I um, took, I mean, of course, you know, you take English every year in high school. I had some really great teachers, English teachers in high school. You know, that's how it always starts, right? Um when I was applying for colleges, I actually, um, I tell this story, at, it's true, but I also tell it as kind of a joke, because I do, let me preface this by saying I do genuinely love my field, and it wasn't as random as this story makes it out to be, um, but when I was applying for colleges, I put down um, a different intended major for every college I applied to, just based on what I was feeling that day. Because my guidance counselor said you'll get department, you'll be eligible for departmental scholarships, so don't say you're undecided. And then oh. the college I ended up going to, I was an English major, and okay. yeah, stuck with it, loved it, kept going. So this was at Midland University, right? Well, I started out at Dana College, which um, was a small liberal arts college about 20 minutes from where I grew up. And I say was because it closed uh, about a month before my senior year started, and I had to transfer to Midland and finish out there. Oh, that's interesting. I will admit I've never talked to anyone who has undergone an experience quite like that, and I would be remiss if I didn't jump at the opportunity to ask (laughs) you about it, I guess. The problem is I don't know the question to ask. So maybe you might just tell us a little bit about that experience and as, a, as an undergraduate, right? And then mm-hmm. how that experience has affected the work you do as a faculty member? 
Yeah, it definitely. um, So what happened was we were in some, Dana was in some financial trouble as, you know, many small liberal arts colleges, unfortunately, are, find themselves. So a um, for-profit entity expressed interest in buying the college and turning it into a for-profit institution. Um, So still residential, if I'm remembering correctly, but looking into expanding online Um, And then the Higher Learning Commission um, didn't approve that um, transition. And so then um, the campus couldn't afford to stay open without making this transition. So then it closed. At the time, like looking back, I can see, you know, I see it from both sides. And actually, my first publication was about this, you know, how it was portrayed in uh, local publications versus, you know, publications like the Chronicle, education-focused publications. Um, At the time, it was pretty devastating, of course, because um, I had about a month, uh, and again, this was before my senior year, to find a new place. And then, you know, of course, all the faculty were suddenly without a job, which was devastating. Um, And I think the way that it has impacted my work now um, but besides, you know, of course, my first publication and uh, some of my first conference presentations coming out of it, um, I really do. The thing that I liked about Dana um, and the thing that I like about Carney, um, too, is this sort of small university college um, atmosphere where you really establish connections with students and, you know, you're really focused on teaching um, and UNK where I am now is bigger than Dana was, but um, it still has some of the same uh, priorities, still very student centered, um, still, you know, you know, your students names, classes are, at least in the English department, classes are small enough where you can um, really establish that sort of connection. Um, But yeah, and, and Midland had that as well, but of course, you know, only being there for a year. And being salty about the circumstances, I probably didn't give it a fair shake. <laughs> I was going to ask, how is Fremont? I, um, but you were only there a year, I guess. So it might, maybe you don't have the best, best portrait of Fremont. I mean, Fremont, I haven't been there in a really long time. Oh. Um, but it was close enough to where, close enough to Valley, where I grew up, that, you know, it wasn't unfamiliar. You know, okay. typical, smaller city They've gotten a Walmart since I've been there, but they didn't have a Walmart or a Target um, when I was there. Sounds a lot like my hometown. And I'll cut this part out unless it's just magnificent audio. I have a friend from high school whose husband is currently running to be the mayor of Fremont, which I know because I have a Facebook. So that's really the the extent of my knowledge of Fremont. (laughs) So that's why I asked. Um, but from Fremont, from Midland University, mm-hmm. where did you go next to pursue your master's degree? Um, well, I was actually, I technically don't have a master's degree. Okay. Um, I wasn't sure how to ask because of the way it's listed on the syllabus. So thank you for correcting me. So I transitioned <laughs> to the um, five-year accelerated program, BA to PhD in rhetoric and composition, um, which basically you leapfrog over the master's and finish all of your graduate work in five years, um, which is a little intense, you know, because it doesn't give you as much 
time to write the dissertation or prepare for comp- your comprehensive exam. Um, but it really was the right choice for me because I knew I wanted the PhD and I wanted to continue working with the faculty that I'd been working with. Um, and I've always been, you know, pretty motivated to, uh, which is a kind way to say workaholic, um, you know, workaholic with anxiety. So, um, so it was a good choice for me. Excellent. And so what kind of led you to Kansas, to the University of Kansas? Um, I knew that I wanted to go into uh, rhetoric and composition. I knew that that was what I wanted to do. And I knew I wanted to stay relatively close to home, stay in the Midwest, but uh, not necessarily stay in Nebraska. Nothing against Nebraska. I'm obviously living here again. Um, but I wanted to experience something a little bit new. Um, and I really liked... Um, I really liked the work of the faculty, um, you know, Amy Devitt and Mary Jo Reif and Peter Grund were the three that I worked with most closely. Um, so I was interested in, you know, genre studies, which Kansas is, of course, really strong in. And um, when I went on a visit to Kansas, I was invited for a campus visit when I was accepted and just loved Lawrence. It's such a great little town. Um, loved the campus. And Yeah. Excellent. So you're, you're, you finished your dissertation in, in 2016, and your dissertation was titled The Formula, Exploring Student Engagement and Meta-Awareness in the New Literacies Narrative. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that project? Sure. Um, so it was... Um, Try to think about where to begin. It's always, <laughs> it's been so long since I had to do the elevator pitch. Right, right. So, is, and one way to think about this question might be to think, what did it become? What was it? And then where did it go after it was a dissertation? Okay. Um, well, it started out just as an assignment that I gave to my introductory composition students. Um, where, it's essentially a literacy narrative where the students are encouraged to write about alternative literacies. So thinking about the communities that they belong to, um, either extracurricular communities or um, I've had students write about religious communities, you know, lots of sports. I'm going to write a literacy narrative about, well, it was basketball in Kansas and it's football here in Kearney, um, as, it te- as you can expect. Um, so thinking about um, how can we talk about literacy outside the classroom, outside of just print-based reading and writing. Um, students can write about, you know, school experiences, learning to read and write if they want to. Um, but in my experience, you know, some students will want to, but not really a lot. You know, they'll write about it if you tell them to, but it's not where their passion is most of the time. Um, so I was looking at it um, had versus the more traditional literacy narrative, if it had a positive impact on um, student engagement, and if it helped um, their critical thinking about literacy. So if they were able to um, talk about literacy as something other than being able to read and write um, print-based English texts. So I did a study of um, five instructors, including myself, and there were 111 student participants. So I had these narratives from 111 students and interviewed five students I interviewed as well. Um, So I had the instructor interviews, the um, student interviews, and the documents themselves, the literacy narratives and the reflections. 
Um, and overall, it uh, students seemed engaged with the assignment. They seemed, um, and of course, you know, th this doesn't apply to every student, but overall, they seemed to enjoy the assignment, to have, um, to be engaged with it. And most of them, many of them did, um, when they were asked to define literacy or talk about how their definition of literacy evolved, um, they were able to talk about literacy as being something other than reading and writing. Just even in the paper topics, you know, the learning to read and write wasn't the most prominent theme. Um, so it was really exciting. And so now um, the direction I'm taking that. Uh, so I'm thinking a little bit more about literacy autoethnography as a way to more accurately get what I'm trying to get. Um, so incorporating interviews with people in the community or observations of texts in these communities that students are writing about. Um, and I'm also thinking more about um, how language specifically. Um, so thinking about rather than literacy, framing it as language, how, how that kind of um, impacts how students take up the assignment or how they think about language and literacy. Would you like to join Charles in the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project, with an emphasis on inclusivity and in localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes, as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have questions about The Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find The Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at TheBigRet. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at TheBigRhetorical at gmail.com. What I started thinking about was the way that I think about literacies and teach literacies and even a comment um, that my dissertation director left on on a chapter last week about how I should talk about literacies in my dissertation. So I think it wasn't convoluted. And I'm, what I'm excited about, though, is to talk about how you're turning this work into actual publications. You've got a book chapter coming up. You've got work in revision to different journals. Why don't we start with that book chapter, which is titled Say What You Want to Say, Teaching Literacy Autoethnography to Resist Linguistic Prejudice. That's coming up in the book Self-Culture Writing, Autoethnography for As Writing Studies. Luckily, as a method, a bit a little bit about autoethnography so this part of the conversation i'll keep up with maybe not up to your standards though amanda so keep that in keep that in mind but i want to walk us a little bit about how this how this um 
work connects to your overall work, which it sounds like it is your overall work, right? Mm-hmm. But also, how does it fit within the other work that's going to be displayed in this in this text, in this book, if you're familiar with uh, the other <laughs> authors and stuff? And then talk a little bit about um, the editors of the book and your relationship there, if there's anything to say. Mm-hmm. Um. So the way that I came to this autoethnography topic, it's a field that I'm relatively new to. This is the first publication um, that deals specifically with autoethnography. So I came to it through the literacy narrative because um, the term literacy narrative, and this is something that I talked about with my dissertation committee, you know, as I was writing, how there's such an association with you know, I'm going to write a story about how I learned to read and write. And there's going to be, um, I talk about this in um, my writing on the edge publication that um, preceded my dissertation, how there's sort of a literacy narrative arc where I love to read and write when I was a kid. And then I got to generally middle school, high school, and suddenly they were telling me what to read and write and I didn't like it anymore. And then there's some statement at the end um, because they're submitting it for an English class about, but I realize it's still important or I know that I need to like reading more. Um, So there's sort of that narrative arc that's associated with it. Um, And this, at least in the first, the preliminary study and just my own observations, it was when they were assigned the Scarlet Letter is often the moment where suddenly they didn't like reading and writing anymore. And I like the Scarlet Letter, but you know, I realize that it's not everybody's cup of tea. <laughs> At some point during this podcast, in the back of my mind for the last three years, I've known that at some point I would have to admit that I've never read The Scarlet Letter. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how it happened. I, I don't know what I missed or what I was doing in ninth or tenth grade to not be reading The Scarlet Letter. But that's one I missed, unfortunately. And I'm embarrassed to say so. <laughs> <laughs> for me, it's Lord of the Flies. Okay. That okay. Those are comparable misses, I think. Yeah, you're assigned it in high school usually, but somehow we somehow we skipped it. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I remember not to go too far off the rails, but I remember this incredible assignment my ninth grade English teacher gave us with Lord of the Flies, where he just like divided us into two groups and left the room. <laughs> it was a disaster. <laughs> that sounds like it could go really badly. It, yeah, based on the book, anyway. <laughs> yeah, so I started wondering if, because um, what I was looking to get for is this level of analysis about their own literacy practices and this sort of investigation into the literacy practices of whatever group they're describing or whatever um, practice they're describing. So I started wondering if autoethnography would be a better label to get at what I'm hoping to get at. Um, And so then this led to, and this is something that I, you know, grapple with in my chapter, what is the distinction between literacy narrative and literacy autoethnography? You know, where's the line? Um, And this actually is a question that just came up on the discussion board for my graduate course. And I still don't know if I have a satisfying answer. Um, I, I ended up concluding that it's a continuum. Um, so obviously, even with autoethnography, there are more narrative-y autoethnographies and more researchy autoethnographies. And um, 
um, Suresh Kanagaraja has a chapter in um, about it, autoethnography with multilingual writers, where he essentially says, if I'm remembering correctly, that the um, degree of analysis, self-analysis, self-reflection of your literacy processes is what distinguishes literacy narrative from literacy autoethnography. So that is the idea, sort of the starting place. And so I was looking at this chapter, with this chapter specifically at multilingual writers. So it's actually the um, dissertation data, so the um, 111, and I was terming it as a literacy narrative then, um, but looking at it now, really what I was asking them to do was a literacy autoethnography. I just, at that point, was avoiding the term autoethnography because it tends to scare students. Um, understandably, I mean, it's yeah. a big word that they probably have heard. Yeah. Um, so I took the five, there were five students who self-identified as multilingual. And so I looked at their writing specifically, uh, at, about what they were saying about their own language and literacy practices. So the say what you want to say quote is actually from one of the students, um, in his autoethnography. Uh, and it's the point where he basically comes to, understand that um, where he comes to be less insecure about what he terms as his uh, broken English or his imperfect English, I believe is the phrase that he uses. Um, and it's a scene um, where his friend, um, who's a native English speaker, basically says, you know, don't worry about not getting the phrasing exactly right. Um, you know, it's not important to you know, most people, most situations. And so he's, yeah, say what you want to say. So where he starts to take pride in his own um, English variety. So I was looking at their relationship to English and their relationship to English education through these autoethnographies. This sounds like a fascinating project. And the thing that struck me is I want to pull back this mm -hmm. idea of literacy narrative. I want to mm -hmm. pull it back out, out from like a genre, okay, and I'm thinking like of it more of an idea. And what I think is fascinating is that you're thinking that your work looks at what this idea, what genre it takes on. Was it a field report? What are the what does it meet the perhaps genre convention criteria of a field report, or is it an essay? This is extremely fascinating to me. Mhm. Mm it is, and it's so murky. Um, and even so, the um blind reviewers, one of the comments that I got was to spend more time on this question between literacy narrative versus like literacy autoethnography. Um, and I think it's because I sort of not directly contradicted, but I said something different from what the editor said in the introduction. So I had to spend some time uh, reconciling that because there is, at least in my mind, there is no hard line between you know, what makes it a narrative, what makes it an autoethnography, because in the ones that I look at in the chapter, you know, they're not doing formal, you know, field observations, they're not looking at, um, you know, they're relating their development in English to, you know, there's one um, who relates it to, um, she's from Vietnam. And so her experience learning English in Vietnam being colored by the history of the American conflict in Vietnam and how there's this distrust of America, distrust of English, coupled with this emphasis on learning English to, you know, succeed in global, on a global scale. So they're relating it to um, history and research in that way, but they weren't, you know, going out and conducting 
field work. Um, I have taught literacy out of ethnographies where that is a requirement, but I think I forgot your question. That's okay. It wasn't really a question. I think the last thing I said was just, I'm excited about it. And, uh, and you were just responding. Yeah, you too. Oh, this is, uh, this is exciting work and I'm excited to see where it goes and how it develops. Our writing program takes a genre studies approach to, I haven't taught in the writing program in a year or so, but it takes a genre studies approach approach to an activity, meshing it with activity theory, um, I really enjoy talking about writing studies pedagogy. I don't I don't get to do it as often as I like these days. So I appreciate the conversation. Yeah. So okay. So let's keep talking though, because you're you're a WPA, all right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're an assistant professor, but you wear many many hats, and that includes being a part of the standing group, uh, a standing group for four C's. What's the name of your standing group? Well, our uh, pithy title is the Untenured and Alternative Academic WPA Standing Group. And you're um, in your second year, right? Second year is a standing group. So we did our five years, I believe, as a special interest group. Um, and we just recently updated our name to include alternative academic because we wanted to emphasize that it's not just people on the tenure track that we're um, that we encompass that we're looking at. It's also people in staff positions, um, people in um, lecturer or adjunct positions, graduate students in WPA roles in WPA roles or even just interested in WPA work. Um, so we felt it was important to include that alternative academic as well. Perhaps in the environment in which we're in now, in the international pandemic, uh, yes. crumbling economy. And I think that's fair to call it that. And a job market that's uncertain. Perhaps your standing group has a lot to offer people in academia, PhD candidates on the job market. What -hmm. do you think about that? Absolutely. So a lot of the literature on um, untenured academic or untenured uh, WPA work is essentially don't do it, Um, which I can definitely see why there are risks, you know, being involved in WPA work without the protection of tenure. Um, But, you know, the job with the job market being what it is, WPA work is something that is routinely advertised or routinely attached to assistant professor roles or lecturer or adjunct roles. Um, and even, you know, like I said, graduate assistants find themselves doing WPA work. So uh, one of the things that we're trying to do, um, or I as chair am trying to do, is to um, provide uh, resources for, you know, so acknowledging the reality that, yes, you know, perhaps it's a less than ideal situation, um, but there's also a lot of really cool opportunities involved in WPA work, even without the, even without tenure. And here are some ways that you can navigate it. Here are some ways that you can position yourself as a job candidate um, to position your experience as being relevant or um, preparing for WPA work, um, even at the assistant professor level or an adjunct or a lecturer level. What sort of resources, I suppose it's fair to ask you in the capacity of leader of this standing group, what sort of resources should graduate students and those hitting the job market again be paying attention to right now? Yeah, that's all, that's even a tough question to answer because there's so much out there. Um, <laughs> uh, the Next Gen Listserv, of course, is a great resource. I assume a lot of your listeners are already subscribers. Um, Hopefully. Yes, uh, for graduate students, early career scholars, 
Um, they're doing so many cool things, putting together resources with underrepresented scholars and um, workshops. That they, they just did an alternative academic job search workshop, I think. Um, that's really cool. It seems like most of the really good resources I've been finding lately have been coming out of that group. A lot of the, I remember when I was researching for my first presentation as part of the standing group, my first C's presentation as part of the standing group, and a lot of the um, stuff out there was, you're going to do too much service work and you're not going to get tenure and everything's going to fall apart. Um, so it's really disheartening because, you know, I am on the tenure track, you know, I do want tenure eventually. Um, so finding, uh, so uh, even just talking to people involved in this group, to people who have, if, if you are on the tenure track, um, ways to successfully, you know, navigate to balance research and administrative responsibilities. Or if you're not on the tenure track, if you are in an adjunct or a lecturer position, we have members in, um, in those roles, you know, who have insights about how to advocate for your writing program, you're not in a faculty role, and there may be um, university structures or university politics at play. Um, so if you are interested in WPA work, or if you are in a WPA role, and you have a concern or you have a question, um, I just encourage you to reach out to uh, me, um, or to any of them, and I can put you in touch with, you know, we have uh, members in all sorts of positions who have insights and are able to share share those. It was unfortunate that we couldn't uh, meet in person at the last C's. Hopefully, I don't know if I'm hopeful that we're able to do it next year or not, but we'll, be, we'll do a virtual meeting if nothing else. Um, and even if we are in person, we'll have virtual options for those of you who want to get involved in the conversation. Um, but just providing a supportive community of people who are in the same role, who are advocating for the interests of, you know, those of us operating in these roles without tenure. Because, I mean, I really love my job as a WPA or composition coordinator here. Um, I usually say WPA when I'm talking outside the university because, you know, that's the term that we're used to using. Um, I mean, and there's definitely, you know, I, I really like having the opportunity to serve my department in this way even before, uh, even not be, even in the assistant professor role before going up um, for the for promotion and tenure. You know, I, I think it's been a really great opportunity. Um, again, a really rambling answer. Hopefully you get something coherent. Admittedly, I don't remember my exact phrasing of the question, so I think it was a great answer. Thank you. <laughs> What I was going to say, though, is valuable insight always from these folks who are not on the tenure track, who serve in adjunct roles and staff positions. Valuable insight always, particularly valuable right now, I think, for yes. sure. Yes. So <clears throat> we've talked a little bit about the work with the standing group. Do you want to shout out um, an email, website, social media handle, et cetera, or people? folks can find out more information about your group? Yes. So uh, my email address, if you want to contact me directly, um, is slotic, A-M-S-L-A-D-E-K-A-M at unk.edu. Um, if you forget that, you can always just, my contact information and my phone number is listed on the UNK website. Uh, we also have a Google group that I can um, 
send to you um, that you can put in the show notes uh, or listeners can contact me um, directly and I can add you to the group um, for updates. Uh, we're still uh, working on building um, social media presence, um, all of that. Uh, so we're still uh, our um, secretary, Jenna Goldsmith, is really working to uh bring us into the 21st century in terms of setting up this fancy Google group that we can use and um, making things easy for us to communicate and access. Um, So shout out to her. She's great. Excellent. What else do we need to talk about? What else do you want to cover in this interview? Um, We're, uh, we just redesigned our general studies program. So that go, were you a big part of that on the committee, I guess? Um, I wasn't on the committee, but being the um, WPA, so the new general studies program dropped the number of required writing credits from six to three. Okay. So we've been thinking about ways to reframe the um, English introductory English class to cover um, all of the skills that need to be covered and also um, developing additional writing courses potentially that um, help meet some of the needs that uh, our English 102, our second semester writing course traditionally did. What are some of the attitudes uh, following the reduction in, in writing credits required for the general education program? Um, actually, at first, I was a little concerned, but in a way, it's presenting um, sort of a unique opportunity because now we are thinking about ways to make this, um, to get everything that we need to get in one course. Or it opens up the possibility um, with um, a couple of people about potentially, um, sorry, that that's my dog. She has thoughts. Um, Scout is very involved in this process as well. <laughs> as, as Scout should be. <laughs> exactly. Um, so about ways to maybe writing courses or a more disciplinary writing focus in the courses that we already have. So we're still working out what that might look like, but I think that it actually, you know, might end up being a positive because it's um, forced us to really think about, you know, what is it that students need to know and what is the best way to, uh, what are some new ways, what is the best way to get them the knowledge that they need. So, so really I'm kind of, you know, proud of what we're doing the way we're adapting to it i think it's going to be really good super cool you'll have to keep me updated on how that goes Uh, amanda thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today it was really great to chat with you i enjoyed it i did too thank you so much I'm, i'm a big fan of the podcast and i really love that i was able to be part of it Dr. Sladek for joining me on this episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I learned so much from her and I'm excited to continue to pay attention to the important work she is doing as the chair of the Four C's Untenured and Alternative Academic WPA Standing Group. As the Big Rhetorical Podcast plans for seasons four and five, we want to talk to you. If you have a book, a project, an interesting topic to talk about, reach out to us as we are now booking guests into Season 5. 
If you're about to hit the job market or go up for tenure, perhaps you might join us as a part of our Emerging Scholar series. The Big Rhetorical Podcast also promotes and attends conferences and symposia. If you would like to promote your event, reach out. You can find more information about the Big Rhetorical Podcast at our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com, and follow us on Twitter at the Big Red. Make sure to leave us a five-star rating and write a review to help us enhance visibility on podcast platforms. Until next time, always be listening rhetorically.